Did you know, in the right conditions, certain grapevines don't need to be watered at all? Welcome to Sustainability Matters Today, where you'll learn about the fantastic work people and organizations are doing right now to heal our planet through environmentally friendly products and methodologies. My name is Daniel Hartz, and I speak with amazing champions of sustainability who prove a clean and beautiful future on Earth is possible because green practices oftentimes make financial sense. I aim to uncover the important role money plays in people's decisions to adopt and commit to environmentally friendly practices in order to create a chain reaction of positive change. In each episode, you'll also learn practical steps you can take every day to live a more eco-friendly lifestyle. Let's jump in. In this episode of the Sustainability Matters Today podcast, my guest is Brad Alper, owner of Square Peg Winery in Sonoma County, California. Squarepeg is a unique winery because Brad doesn't use irrigation or any herbicides in his vineyards and is able to grow delicious and award-winning Pinot Noir. We discuss the dry farming technique, which is location-specific, requires farmers to grow vines using specific rootstocks, and needs the farmer to care for each vine by hand. We cover Sonoma County's goal of having 100% certified sustainable vineyards and wineries by the end of 2019. Brad clarifies a misconception that sustainable and organic farming are the same, when really, sustainability encompasses farming, energy consumption and production, the health of the soil, and paying workers a fair wage. This is a greater achievement and makes a broader positive impact on the environment than simply checking a few boxes that qualify your farm as organic. If you know someone who's passionate about wine, unique farming techniques, or sustainability, share this episode with them. You can find us at sustainabilitymatters.today. If you'd like to learn more about Brad and the Square Peg Winery, visit the website squarepegwinery.com. And let us know you're listening to this episode on Instagram. Tag us at sustainabilitymatterstoday and at squarepegwinery. We'd love to hear from you. Hi, Brad. Thank you very much for joining me. Good morning, Daniel. Nice to, nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Excellent. So, before we jump into the details of your vineyards and wineries, um, I'd like to take a step back and ask a bit about your background. So you were a pilot for American Airlines for over 28 years, and then you decided to retire early and focus 100% on your vineyards and wine production. First of all, where did your love for wine come from? Well, to be honest with you, um, Daniel, I didn't really have a love of wine before I got into this business. Okay. If I heard somebody talk about wine, you know, talking about the aroma and the nose and legs and so on, I, I just thought they were pretentious. Right. Uh, so it wasn't any kind of a, a life goal of mine or some passion that I that I had. It was like a lot of things in life. It just sort of evolved. Mm. Um, and a little bit of a, a backstory of how I actually got into the business really was... Um, I was based in Los Angeles, and my wife and I had gone on a holiday and came home, and our house had been robbed. So they, they pretty much took everything oh, wow. and talked a lot about moving out of the city and moving to the country, and that just kind of kicked us in the pants, so to speak, and, and got us out. We moved to Sonoma County <laughs> and bought a little piece of land, and there was a, about, a, about an acre that wasn't – there was nothing on it. It had been – previous owners had kept a, a couple of cows, and so it was fallow ground, and I just thought it was a shame to, to have it there going to waste. And it just so happened that adjacent to my property was an old 
vine Zinfandel vineyard, and it had been growing for 80 years at that time um, without water. And I remembered that the older gentleman who I purchased my property from reminded me on more than one occasion, you know, Brad, there's not much water up here. So if you're going to grow anything, you need to be really mindful of that. So that just seemed like the perfect fit for me to plant Zinfandel because I didn't have to water it. And so we did that in 1994. And then um, in 1999, the property adjacent to me, which was at Apple Orchard, came for sale. And this was, uh, Pinot Noir was not at the level that it is right now, but the trajectory was skyward. So a lot of the big wineries from Napa were coming to this area because of its, um, it, it just grows beautiful Pinot Noir. I know if I didn't get my hands on it, I would be living next to an industrial vineyard. So I was able to purchase it partnered with a couple of folks in the wine business um, that knew a lot about wine and, and we planted Zin, Zinfandel and created our first brand. And so that's how it all started. And then it just slowly evolved. Wow. Well, um, yeah, a house being robbed is a very strong catalyst, I would imagine, to move. And so at what point did you decide to give up flying and focus only on the, on the winery or the vineyard? Uh, well, it was... Um, I had um, the good fortune of being hired by American Airlines when I, when I was 23 years old. So I was very young. And in the airline business, seniority is everything. So when you get hired, you're handed a seniority number, and that number stays with you for your entire career. And that, that number determines your schedule, your vacation, the aircraft, equipment that you fly. It really just pretty much determines your professional life. And fortunately, I was very senior, so I was able to upgrade to a captain, very, very young and also um, make my way through the ranks and ultimately moved up to a, become a captain on a 777 um, cool. and flying international. And I live in Sonoma County, which is about an hour and a half north of SFO. Um, but unfortunately, American did not have any international flights that originated in San Francisco. So I had to commute to Los Angeles to, to do my work schedule. And I just... Um, and a lot of people can do it, um, but I just, I just couldn't. It just, I was, it was a grueling commute for me, especially because I was trying to, you know, full time in the vineyard, full time with my other brand. So I'd commute to LA. I'd have to be there early, so in case there was any problems, I wouldn't miss my flight, and then fly to mostly London, sometimes Shanghai, come back, commute home, and then jump right back into to work. So there's really no time to to rest. And I always, as an international travel. Traveler, I know you're aware of how long it takes you to recover yeah. from that. And there's really no time to recover. And I just start thinking how, how crazy it was for me to continue to do this really for just, I, mean, I loved flying, but health-wise, it wasn't agreeing with me and my brand was suffering. So I just made the decision to to give up a secure job and benefits and seniority and good pay yeah. for farming. Yeah, well, good. I'm, I'm glad it turned out to be a good decision. But yeah, that, that must have been... I mean, that sounds absolutely exhausting. If I took a look at your website for Square Peg Winery, um, one of the very first things I see is that you grow grapes in a unique way. So what are some of the primary differences between your vineyard and quote-unquote conventional vineyards? Well, the main thing is um, that we dry farm. So we grow our grapes without irrigation Mm -hmm. in many parts of the world. That's not such a big deal uh, because there's rainfall throughout the growing season. But where we are, where we're located here at Sonoma County, um, typically we don't see any rain from May until, say, October. Wow. We might have a little sprinkle here or there, but for the most part, there is just no water at all. 
So that's it's it is unusual for grape growers, especially growing premium quality grapes, to dry farm. Uh-huh. Uh, Zinfandel is is more widely dry farmed, and we which we grow, and then Pinot Noir. You know, if I had to put a number on it, I would say less than one percent of the growers in this region dry farm Pinot Noir. So that's the that is the the main difference. Um, other other things that we do a little bit differently than and many vineyards is that we do not use any herbicides mm-hmm. roundup basically underneath in our vine rows because it, it's difficult to remove weeds underneath the, uh, the grapevines. So what many growers will do is they'll spray an herbicide underneath each row and it looks beautiful and the, the vineyards are pristine, but you're adding herbicides into the soil. And if you just do that you know, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, uh, it's it's certainly not good for the soil. So we still have to remove the weeds. So what we end up having to do is do it by hand. So it takes us quite a bit longer and it's quite a bit more expensive. But in my view, it's better for the environment over the long haul. Yeah. I also saw that you actually care for each vine by hand multiple times throughout the year. Yes. So that way, rather than just going through a kind of homogenous or mechanical approach and just doing everything the same for each vine, each one is actually taken care of individually. And so what's the benefit of doing it kind of by hand rather than the same for everyone? Well, it's dry farming really re- requires that we do that. So if, or those um, growers that, that irrigate their vineyards, essentially they're able to provide whatever fertilizer they need through the irrigation um, and they're able to obviously irrigate. So each vine is, while they're not identical clones of each other, essentially they're all getting the same amount of um, nutrition and water. Um, they're, they're all getting about the same. So they, they essentially, you can train each one of them the same. So when you have a, a crew come through to prune, for instance, you can just tell your crew, okay, on, on this one, here's how I want you to prune it this year. Mm-hmm. On one side of the vine, leave this cordon, which is a lateral arm. Just leave me one cordon on one side and then leave me two on the other. And then the crew goes through and that's what they do. When you don't irrigate, you know, one of, one vine might be extremely vigorous, uh, very healthy. Uh, and the one next to it might be a little bit weaker because maybe there's a different s- soil structure or it's wetter or, or for whatever reason. So you can't leave those two lateral arms on one and then one on the other, you might only be able to leave one lateral arm because that fine, the vigor of that line just yeah. will not handle so many uh, lateral arms. So when you, we prune, we have to we have to have a couple of folks who are, who are very um, in tune with the vineyard, who are looking down the road three to five years with each cut they make because it's going to affect the vine for that long. And um, they, they have to really be passionate about it. And it's more than just a technical skill. They have to, it's, there's, there's an art involved and they have to really care about it. So those, those folks are very difficult to find. So each vine, as you said, is, is different. Each vine has different cuts. And then by virtue of the fact that um, when we dry farm, we have almost no water uptake by the vine. So we have to use a, a, a root that is, that can tolerate not being watered. Mm-hmm. And there are dozens of different rootstocks that you can use when you when you farm grapes some that are suited to wet soil some dry some rocky what have you because we're dry farming we need to use a rootstock that is is very vigorous and drought tolerant yeah 
And one of the downsides with using a root like that is it encourages tremendous growth in the vine. And on the face, you face of it, you might think, well, that's great. Don't you want tremendous growth on the vine? Don't you want it to be healthy? But we don't want too much um, of the vine's energy going into the production of leaves and shoots. We need some of that energy to go into the fruit. So this rootstock is called St. George root. While it's it's ideal for dry farming, it's also so very, very vigorous in it. It creates this just Amazon-like vine. So we have to rein in that vigor manually. We have to go through, um, in addition to pruning properly, we have to go through the vineyard several times a year to, to pull shoots off, to pull leaves off, to monitor the cluster growth, the grape cluster growth. And if some of these grapes are lagging behind or not ripening um, later in the season, we'll have to remove those. So it's all of these chores are done in, in even a conventional vineyard. It's just that the level that we have to, to take it to um, is is greater, which is, right. requires more work, sense. which is more labor, and which is a higher cost. It's interesting to hear that although you're you're dry farming, yeah, you'd think that the the growth would be stunted because you know there's no water. But it's amazing to hear that there's a Saint George rootstock which actually does really well and instead starts growing and and blossoming and putting all of this all of these leaves out there. I actually had your 2016 pinot noir uh, the last couple nights and it's absolutely delicious um I, I wanted to make sure that i had some before before we talked and in general i'm a, I'm a really big fan of pinot I, I really like kind of light airy wines but what i noticed about yours specifically was that it was especially good do you think that dry farming affects the flavor of the grapes at all and ultimately the flavor of the wine well I'm pretty, I, I know that it does actually. Um, okay. You know, when you have a, a dry farmed vine versus a, a vine that's irrigated, you know, at least on our site here, the, the roots from that vine are 15 to 20 feet deep. And the irrigated right. vines in, just in, the, in vineyards that are adjacent to mine actually you know, typically are two to three feet deep. So that's quite a bit deeper. Um, or the dry farm vines are quite a bit deeper, obviously. So you got to think about that soil structure, um, the nutrients, the minerals that are in this soil that are at that very deep level that the vines are, are able to tap into. And while they may not influence directly the flavor of the grapes, they, they change the way that their grapes make flavor. Mm-hmm. So, and there's also a whole other um, layer to it, the mycorrhizae, which are the microbes in the soil. You know, there's have this or two take a look at um, a cross-section of the soil down 15 feet. Um, and with all these mycorrhizae, it would just go like a spider web under the soil. And they're just out there sequestering nutrients and actually transporting nutrients to the vine that the vine could not transport by itself. It really changes the flavor profile of the grapes. And this year, into our upcoming release of our 2017 Pinot, um, I was able to add a vineyard that is right next door to my vineyard, and it's irrigated. And it uses well, one of the sections in the vineyard uses an identical clone to clone that I'm using in my vineyard. Mm. So I had the opportunity during a tasting here a couple of weeks ago. I had six six folks here, and they were all they were not really experienced with wine. It was a charity event, and they had bid on this special day here, um, and so they were not really into wine, so to speak. Right, And I talk about dry farming, and one of these guys was very skeptical. It was clear that he didn't even really want to be there. He just 
and his wife was dragging him along. Um, he said, would I be able to tell the difference between a wine made from a dry farm grape or versus one that's irrigated? And I said, absolutely. I said, in fact, you guys will be the first people to tr- let's try these side by side. So I went down to my cellar and grabbed a bottle of ours that was dry farm and the neighbors from, from the neighboring vineyard that was irrigated. And we did a blind tasting. And of course, in the middle of this, I was thinking, oh my God, what if they prefer the irrigated yeah. wine? But Anyway, I just said, well, you know what? We're going to do it. And, you know, I expected, I hoped that, say, 60 or 70% of the folks would would, would be able to say they like the dry farm better and uh, versus the, the irrigated. It turned out that out of six of them, all six of them said emphatically, oh, I like this. I like this one. This is the best one. And it was all dry farm. Wow. So it was 100%. And from folks who are not very, were not experienced with wine. Now, you know what they like. So they could all tell the difference. And it wasn't. Well, I'm not really sure which one I like the best. So I, that was really gratifying. And you, you can tell the difference, you know, and I'm not saying that it's, it's, it's a better wine. It's just different, you know, and it's, um, there's some incredible wines that are made from irrigated grapes. So I don't want to bash that because it's just, it's just different. Right. Makes a lot of sense. Um, as you said, it's a lot of work to get that wine. So the fact that even people who have no background, uh, the fact that they can tell that must be very exciting and feel very good. You were mentioning the soil structure and the mycorrhizae and uh, and how all of that affects the flavor. And you also mentioned that you're not using any Roundup or any herbicide uh, to remove the weeds. Is part of the reason why you don't use the herbicide in order to maintain the soil structure and to make sure that your soils are healthy because of the positive effect on the flavor? Well, that's a side benefit, the flavor, in my opinion. But really for me, I'm just looking at a much longer, longer term view of this, of the vineyard and the soil and the environment. And I just ask, ask myself, is this over the next 10, 20, 30, 50 years, is this going to be good for the soil? Putting this, this roundup here, I mean, um, grapes may not, we may not have grapes here in 10 years and there may be something else. Um, is, is this really the best, best alternative? I'm lucky because I have a, a small vineyard and I can manage it. But, you know, if you have a thousand acres, it, it's a tough one. It's a, it's a tough call. And I think if Roundup is used judiciously and carefully, I think in some cases growers don't have an, any alternative to that. The long term, is it healthy for the soil? You know, I'm not so sure that it is. Could the soil recover? Probably. But um, it's just become part of my ethos. Trying to make the best possible decision for the long term with minimal impact on the environment. Yeah, well, that's great. I mean, based on what you outlined in terms of what you do on a day-to-day basis to maintain your vines and everything is done manually. I mean, like you said, a thousand acres must be very difficult to maintain without any sort of machinery or chemical use. That's one of the benefits of having a small vineyard is that you have the opportunity to do it however you want and you know, in a way that matches your, as you said, your ethos. You mentioned that it's there's a lot of manual labor that goes along with dry farming, um, but by not irrigating your vines, you're also saving millions of gallons of water over the lifetime of the vineyard, which is obviously great for the environment, especially in California where it's frequently dry and there's droughts sometimes as well. Does dry farming actually help you save money at all by not having to pay for the water, or is that kind of negligible? Well, it's, it is negligible where we are simply because we use our, we have groundwater and in the area that we're in, it's not, um, 
it's not an aquifer per se. Um, we have fractures in, in, in rock formations 50 or, or so feet beneath our surface here that water pools up, mm-hmm. pools in. And so if you have to irrigate your vineyard, you can tap into that water oh, and pump it from a well. So really the only cost would be electricity to run mm-hmm. a pump. And in our case, though, we are we have a solar a, a photovoltaic system. So we generate our own electricity and um, actually we create excess electricity that we sell back to the local power company. And, mm-hmm. you know, the amount that they pay, they charge you a lot when you buy the electricity, but they sure don't pay you very much when they buy it back. Right. So really, it's not that much. So really, if we did have to irrigate, we would be using the electricity and then we wouldn't be selling as much back. So I would that would be the only amount, the amount of money that we would save. So it wouldn't really be too much. So it's not so much an economical consideration as it is just um, we're fortunate enough to have the capability to, to dry farm here. And so why not take advantage of it? Yep. You mentioned that in certain parts of the world, dry farming is very common, but uh, can anyone grow grapes using dry farm methods or is that specific to certain parts of the world? And in this case, you have the Goldridge soil, which is very unique to the Russian River Valley and is great for kind of holding moisture, especially throughout that dry season you mentioned. So is that kind of a unique thing to specific areas or if anyone wanted to do it, they could? Well, I can really only speak to this, to my area here. Um, and it's really site specific, you know, mm-hmm. it just depends. You can have one site that, and in case in point where my vineyard is located, you know, I'm able to dry farm just because of the Goldrick soil and some of the other attributes of the soil and the substructure of the, of the soil. Right. But directly adjacent to my vineyard, maybe 50 yards away is a site that is, you just can't dry farm. Huh. The soil just does not permit that. It doesn't retain the moisture. There's no groundwater to speak of at a, at a deep level for the roots to tap into. So they don't have that ability to, to do that. That being said, I'm sure they would, they would dry farm if they could, but in lieu of that, most of the growers in this area, obviously, they have to be water conscious. So it's not like everybody up here is just pumping massive amounts of water on their vines. Some of these growers will only water once a year, you know, and practice deficit irrigation. So even the, the folks that are not dry farming are very conscious of water usage and not wasting, not wasting water at all. So can anybody dry farm? Probably not. But the ones that aren't able to are getting as close to a dry farm as they possibly can. Yeah, that's cool. Good to know that you can you can certainly try and get close to it. Moving on to a different aspect and, and away from dry farming, the Sonoma County wine growers, in partnership with Sonoma County Vintners, uh, they announced on January 15, 2014, which was about four and a half years ago at the time of this recording. So they announced that Sonoma County is committed to becoming the country's first 100% sustainable wine region by 2019. Uh, So it was a five-year period, and there's only a handful of months left to go. And I noticed that Square Peg is listed in the sustainability roll call of the Sonoma County Wine Growers' fifth annual sustainability report. And basically, Square Peg is one of the vineyards that is certified Sonoma County sustainable, which I think is awesome. And that's that's great news. Uh, And congratulations for that. What exactly does it mean to be a quote-unquote sustainable wine grower? And was there anything in specific that you needed to, to do to get the certification? Well, there's several different routes a grower 
can take to become certified sustainable. The, the route that we took was um, we have several inspections of the vineyard. Uh, they, it's called fish friendly farming. Mm-hmm. And we're we're certified through that avenue, and it's based on the care of the soil uh, runoff, because ultimately everything that comes off of this vineyard ends up in a creek or a stream or a river. So we right. uh, have to pay very close attention to our erosion control and managing our cover crop to filter out any of the silt that's coming off the property and, and, and retaining that, I should say. So there's a lot of different different hoops to jump through to mm-hmm. um, become sustainable it's impressive because they're almost all as you said it's almost at 100 percent right now right uh, it's really gratifying to be a part of a, a an organization that really cares so much about their local environment and you know so much about the larger corporate farms that just put profit above the their future future generations really and um, most or many of the vineyards in this area are owned by smaller farmers um, and even some larger growers that are fifth and sixth generation and they take it they take this very very seriously so um, i don't want to portray myself as 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 being at that level and i'm not and i'm actually honored to be even associated with some of these these folks here Mm. who are really taking the long-term view of of by becoming sustainable yeah, I I think it's I think it's so cool that an entire county has decided, you know, we are going to lead the way and we're going to make sure that everyone here mitigates their impact, the negative environmental impacts of farming. We're all in it together and we're all going to make sure that we become sustainable. It's cool to hear that even big vineyards that have been doing it for a long time are are into it and doing their part as well. It's easier for these big companies to say, well, you know, that's not really what we do. We're trying to bolster the economy and kind of take that approach. But the fact that they're running with it and and embracing it is really fantastic. So SquarePeg is certified sustainable. Does that mean that you're certified organic? Well, we're not, we are not certified organic because we're actually surrounded by vineyards that are not, that are not organic. So we just don't have the clearance from those vineyards to be able to ever be sustained organic, but back up a little bit about sustainability. Sustainability is, is really beyond organic so organic is just is just dealing with with the farming mm-hmm. and most growers at, at you know some level are organic and until they're not organic you right. know um, everybody wants to be as organic as they possibly can but at some point you need to require you need to call on some tool in your arsenal to combat something that or an organic product just will not um, take care of so organic is farming, but sustainable is is a is a much larger picture than right. just farming. Sustainable is obviously it is about the farming, but it's also about retaining soil, being friendly to the, the fish, also paying your workers a living mm-hmm. wage, managing the energy, your energy usage, and so on. When people say sustainable, they just think, oh, sustainable is just a buzzword for people who can't become organic. Well, that's not true at all. It's 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 beyond organic. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Sounds like organic is very much, it's like you're just working in a bubble. So I, I'm not using these herbicides. I'm not using these pesticides. So I'm organic. Whereas exactly sustainable is very much a bigger picture. It says, okay, let's kind of go above and outside of that bubble. You know, if possible, let's not use these pesticides and herbicides as well, because that's not good for the environment. But let's also look at the bigger picture. How are my people being treated? How is my energy consumption affecting 
the rest of the, the world, really. From that point of view, it's even cooler that the entire county is going 100% sustainable because what they're saying is we want every vineyard in our county to consider the outside world and to consider the environmental impacts of the work that, that, they're, that everyone's doing. You know, certified organic is kind of an interesting thing because I think people are now picking up a lot on what it is. And, you know, a lot of people know that organic things are typically more expensive. The sustainability label is still quite new. I mean, it's only been kind of going on for a few years and only now is it approaching 100% in terms of Sonoma County's uh, wineries or vineyards. Do you think you'd be able to command a higher price for your wines if you could get that certified organic label onto your bottles? I'm not so sure that we could, to tell you the mm. truth. People, um, the younger folks that are coming up, um, and I think it resonates more with them. And because of our proximity to San Francisco and Silicon Valley, I do see a lot of younger folks who are who are much more aware of that and, and really do care about where their food comes from and ultimately their wine. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, you know, a dollar is a dollar. And um, while I'm sure there are a few people that are passionate about where they spend their money and are going to, going to su support these smaller organic farmers, and they're going to look at, they're going to balance that out with, well, this is organic, but this is probably just as good of a wine and I'm going to save $10 a bottle. Yeah. So I, I wish it, if that wasn't true and that people really understood how much more it cost and how much they're helping themselves in the long run by supporting uh, smaller, sustainable, organic farmers and growers. You know, when you're in the store and you're in a hurry and you're, you're, you're just trying to grab a bottle of wine to take to dinner, I'm not so sure that enters, even enters into the equation. It's just price, yeah. the way the label looks. And if there's a review on the wine that um, they say, oh, this ought to be a good one. Yeah. Um, I think that's a very, I think that's a very important factor in terms of the sustainability movement, organic, you know, ultimately a dollar is a dollar. And I think it always does boil down to the financial aspect of it, which is part of the reason why I'm so interested in understanding kind of what the financial elements are from both the consumer and the producer side. Um, just because, you know, sustainability is, is all well and good, but if it's too expensive for people, then they just won't do it. It's very kind of black and white in that sense. But it's interesting to hear that you're mentioning, you know, that there are younger people from the um, Silicon Valley and San Francisco who are obviously very kind of progressive, that you're seeing that it's important for them because there was a Nielsen Global Survey where they surveyed 30,000 consumers worldwide this was back in 2015, and their results showed that 44% of respondents said they would be more likely to purchase or support Sonoma County because of the sustainability efforts. Have you noticed that people are more willing to buy your wines because of your growing practices and they hear you know, the sustainability, they hear dry farming and saving millions of gallons of water and no herbicides and so on? Is that something you see affecting people's decisions when they're picking your wine? In a roundabout way, Daniel, I think that's correct. Over the years, we've done many, many public tastings. So in, say, for instance, we go to San Francisco, a large venue, and there might be six or 7,000 people attending and 300 wineries. And there's every winery has their own table and mm -hmm. they're all pouring their wines. And, you know, we have a sign that says dry farm Pinot Noir. And it catches people's attention because they don't know what that is. And right. so they 
get to the to our table and well, what's dry farming? And we then we have our opportunity to explain ourselves, mm-hmm. and then they try the wine and like, wow, this is this is really just like your reaction. This is great wine, yeah, you know. And then I explain why and and so on. Um, and so it's 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 an, it's something that's unusual and it intrigues them. And then once they're in, then they're like, wow, this is amazing, you know. And then we've got a, a convert, and then we have a tasting room as well. And so, which we've had open for, I think three years now, and it's right on our vineyard. It's not located in a winery and it's, it's just, um, and many, many people will tell us, you know, I was looking for a place to go that was different and family oriented. And I saw yours and I said, dry farming. Wow. That's really interesting. No water. So, you know, if we didn't, if we weren't out in the public and we didn't have a tasting room, it was just sitting on the shelf. You know, I'm not, I'm not sure that it would get their attention and they'd try it just because it was dry farm. But when they have an opportunity to, to taste it and understand the story, then I think we've converted them. So it's it's like one person at a time, really. That's very cool. And I'm, I'm glad to hear that it does work uh, and that people are interested. And yeah, when you have so many options, it's very difficult to make a decision. And so if you can find something that's different, you can grab onto that and say, well, this one's especially cool because it's dry farmed and here's the story behind it. Do you think that your growing practices produce a healthier wine? Well, you know, we're certainly adding less chemicals to the wine, but by the time it's, you know, the the grapes are harvested and this pretty much goes for all the growers, you know, by the time you harvest your fruit and a typical year in a, in a, in a good growing season, unless there's a problem with the grapes, unless you have a problem that you have to resolve, there's nothing added, nothing sprayed in the vineyard. So, you know, by the time those grapes are harvested, they're they're pretty clean, mm-hmm. whether it's organic or not. There's not residual chemicals to be found in the wine, and that's generally speaking. There's exceptions to that rule, but so as far as it being a healthier wine, you know, I, I can't in, in my gut it says yeah, I'm sure, but I'm, you know, scientifically speaking, if you did a lab test side by side and just looked what was in there, I can't mm-hmm. I can't say that I can't answer that honestly, Daniel. I don't really know. Interesting. I mean, I, I didn't know that there was no spraying towards the end um, or any kind of applications. When, when folks spray their vineyards, this is not just a haphazard program where they just go out and spray willy nilly. This is highly, it's regulated, but it's also, um, there are families of chemicals that are rotated, application rates are adhered to, and there's things called PHI, which pre-harvest interval um, there are some things you cannot spray, you know, period. You just can't three weeks in advance. So there are some that are uh, less harmful and more benign to human beings that you can spray right up till to harvest. And most growers will save those, you know, keep those in their arsenal just in case they need to use it. If there's a you know mold outbreak or uh, something else, because these chemicals have been tested and, and proven to be safe right up to the day of harvest. Right. Um, and so a lot of years you just, you won't even use them, as I said, because it's, it's taken care of ahead of time. You've sprayed all, all year long. And then the last three or four weeks or month, you're, you're not doing anything. The grapes are just oh. out there, hopefully getting ripe. And then um, this brings up a, one point that is a little bit interesting that I researched in, in trying to become a hundred percent organic. And that is um, if we just wanted say, to say, use sulfur, which we, we do use early in the season to help inhibit mold and mildew. Our application rate is somewhere depending on, you know, the, the, the disease pressure of the, of that 
particular growing season, six to eight pounds per acre. And you would spray, you know, eight to 10 times a year. So that's a lot of sulfur to be putting. It's going to end up back in the soil where there are other non-organic, but they call them fungicides that will help inhibit mold and mildew that the application rate is, it's in a liquid form, three ounces per 300 gallons. I mean, it's just minuscule. And um, you just, and so that's not ending up in the soil. And so what people hear, are you organic? Well, you know, what's better? Six to eight pa- uh, pounds of sulfur per yeah. acre to 10 times a year or three ounces per 300 gallons, you know, mm. a few times a year. So it's, uh, you know, it's a trade-off. It's just like everything else. It's a, it's a balance. Yeah. Interesting. So you're saying that the six to eight pounds per acre of sulfur is the organic way. That's correct. Yep. Oh, wow. And you have to spray more often. If you have um, a, a normal year where your mold pressure or say that the environment is just normal and if you didn't do anything, you would have mold. So you have to do something. So you spray, um, you have a tank, we'll just say there's 300 gallons in the tank and it's calibrated to spray a certain amount of gallons per acre. So you mix your sulfur with that. Mm-hmm. Well, you're instead of spraying once every two, two to three weeks, you're going to spray once every eight days. And that's a lot. And then you've got to think of, well, what's, how is this being sprayed? Well, you have a tractor. So you're burning petrochemicals as you go through there. And then that tractor is compacting the soil. And we go to great lengths to um, right. plant cover crop and we try not to compact the soil. So, you yeah. know, it's a, everything is a trade off. Yeah, that's interesting. I think that's um, a very good example of kind of where the difference lies between organic and sustainable. As you just mentioned, um, that's that's the organic way. But sustainable takes a step back and says, okay, well, let's think about the bigger picture. Uh, we don't want soil compaction. Uh, we want to make sure our cover crop is there to, uh, you know, filter water. Uh, we don't want to spray more than necessary. So it, it is a trade-off, and the organic methodology may have its benefits, but the sustainable one has its benefits, which are seemingly bigger picture kind of taking a step back um, just because as someone who is certified sustainable, as someone who was thinking about sustainability, even before Sonoma County decided to to do this sustainability certification, do you have any ideas on what people listening to this podcast can do to be more environmentally friendly or more sustainable in their everyday life? That's a good question. (laughs) That's a big question, but you know, um, I think if everybody would just step back and really take a good look, um, because we get on this bandwagon about organic produce and the farmers being sustainable, and which is all, you know, be wonderful if, if we could all do that. Absolutely. Right. It would be incredible. And there's people who rally against uh, farmers who are not organic. And of course there's, there's always the bad apple, excuse the pun, you know, but, um, Really, everybody, we're all, most people have a car, right? I mean, you, the energy used to make that car and the plastics that are in that car and the chemicals. I'm sitting here talking to you over a computer. I mean, the components that go into a computer are toxic. And when those when these are discarded, yep. it's just, uh, and our cell phones and the energy that we use is, you know, that every one of these, these things affects our environment, our clothes, you know? The our, our yeah. shoes that when you drive your car, the tires wear down. Where does that tire dust go? So we all kind of step back and just say, 
oh, we need to be green and 100% organic. But, you know, that's great. But look at your own life before everybody can just look at their life and say, you know, gee, gee whiz, no. yikes. I, there's, a, there's a lot of things I could do here, too, and then seek out maybe more environmentally friendly choices and options and, and not just with food, but with electronics and recycling. If you're going to upgrade to a new computer or find a way to least impact on the environment, there's always going to be an impact. And I don't know um, if we've passed the tipping point that we can actually get back to to being, being getting this planet back in balance, but it'll be probably going to be done for us. Yeah. But that's another conversation. Mother Earth is always going to come out on top. But I just think in the broader picture, if everybody just takes a look at their life and try to limit the impact they have on the planet, the better. And please, by no means, I don't want to sound, sound like I'm an expert in this field because I'm, I'm certainly not there. Are, so many people better you know, suited to talk about this than I am. I just have this small little vineyard and I know what works best here. But in the broader sense, you know, I think there's a lot of resources out there that people can, can look at to try to improve the quality of their life and then in turn improving the quality of life on earth in general for everybody. Yeah, I think it's a really good point. I mean, it's so easy to point your finger and blame others and, you know, just say, well, these companies or this government or whatever it is, isn't pulling their weight. But at the same time, I mean, everyone has the the option and the ability to, you know, make changes in, in their own home or in their in their habits. And ultimately, as you were saying earlier, you know, people can vote with their dollar as well. So if you don't agree with what one company is doing, if you can't afford to choose a different option, then definitely do that. Because I think that by voting with your dollar, it certainly can make a difference, even if it's just um, one bottle of wine at a time. Uh, and do you have a book or two that you can recommend for for anyone who's interested in learning more about sustainable vineyards, viticulture, or winemaking? You know, I, d- I don't really have a book that I can recommend for sustainable viticulture, winemaking, and so on. There's, you know, there's a lot. I hate to, to just kind of try to bow to this question, take it the easy way out, saying you could just go online and, and Google and find a lot of uh, a lot of choices and so on. But you know, for me personally, mm-hmm. because I live in this credible area and I have access to myriad of different growers. It's all, it's just personal for me. If I have a question, I can go ask somebody. So but there are a couple of books that aren't uh, sustain, you know, dealing with sustainable grape growing per se, but there's one called the science of grape vines. Mm-hmm. And it's just an, it's an amazing book like uh, Keller. It, it just re- it talks about how the vine makes flavor, how it grows and certain problems in great, great detail. And so when you have a real, when you have an in-depth understanding of exactly what's happening, then you can step back and say, okay, well, oh, cool. I see how this is happening. Now, how can I work with the vines? So when you have a better understanding of the, all the processes, then it leads you into thinking outside of the box on, well, how about if we try this or how about if we try that? And always with sustainability in mind. And then there's another book called General Viticulture. That is, it's a standby in the great business. Just talks about absolutely everything in, in great detail and it's very understandable. But um, other than that, folks could just go online and, and find um, the, the, best, the information that they need. Cool. Yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense to read books that give you a, a strong understanding of how the whole thing works and how the vines grow and what exactly you need to be looking for. And that way you can, once you understand those basics, then you can start tweaking and experimenting and you'll be able to make your judgment calls because of your understanding. Exactly. Finally, where can people find you or learn more about your work and uh, purchase your wine should they want to? Well, because our production is so small, uh, the only place you can 
purchase our wine is in our tasting room, in our vineyard. So we'll all have to just come and visit you. That's right. You will. Make an appointment, squarepegwinery.com. Um, and it's more than just wine tasting. It's a it's a great experience. And our winemaker is, is a pioneer, actually, in Burgundian style Pinot in this country. He's been making wine since 1983. So oh. we have these lovely dry farm Pinot, Zin, Chardonnay, and then we now make some rosé as well in the hands of just one of the top winemakers in the world. So it's a it's not just about tasting wine. It's about exactly what we're doing here today, Daniel, is we talk about these things and people get to see the vineyard and then try the, the wine and then um, and then they take it home and they remember that day. And it, it, so that to me, that's kind of what we're seeing actually harkens back to the question that you asked earlier about will people pay more for organic wine? Once people come here and they have a connection to the place, that's that's a whole other dimension than just buying a bottle of wine. Mm-hmm. So. Um, if they like to, if they want to purchase it, come to the tasting room. Otherwise, there's a few restaurants around the country that serve it. Excellent. Well, yeah, I'd love to come visit and see everything in action. But Brad, thank you so much for for your time today. This was a great conversation. It's so interesting to hear how you know how you can use alternative approaches to grow grapes rather and and to create fantastic wine. Um, so thank you very much for your time. And uh, yeah, really, really appreciate everything you're doing. My pleasure, Danny. Hey, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed chatting with you today. Thank you for listening to episode one of season two. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast to be the first to know about new episodes. We're on Spotify, the Apple podcast app, Stitcher, and anywhere else where you can listen to podcasts. If you know anyone who's interested in sustainability and would enjoy listening to this episode or any of the other sustainability matters today episodes, let them know. Send them the URL sustainabilitymatters.today. And if you want to chat, tag us on Instagram at sustainability matters today and at square peg winery. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks and talk to you soon.